We would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Preborn. When a mother meets her baby on an ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection. And the majority of the time, she will choose life. But she can't do it without our help. Preborn needs us, the pro-life community, to come alongside her. One ultrasound is just $28. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby or visit preborn.com. Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Jenna, first, good morning. Great to be with you, the queen of talk radio in America. The left does not want to honor our freedoms, and we have a responsibility to fight back. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. Fill that void with a vision that runs so deep that it dilutes the woke agenda. Well, thank you, Jenna. Right from the beginning, I knew you, so it's an honor to be with you. and You're doing really well. Proud of you. Former legal counsel to President Trump, Jenna Ellis. Well, on Tuesday, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy officially announced the launch of that impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden's shady Biden brand business partnership with his son. That characterization is according to Town Hall. They also report that the White House is on the defensive, lashing out in a lengthy memo that was published yesterday. In it, the Biden administration officials attack the media and demand reporters turn away from inquiring about President Joe Biden and instead focus on Republicans. Well, (laughs) that's what the media does best, right, is just take directives as the fourth estate from Democrats. And we're going to get into this and a whole lot more with Congressman Mike Johnson later on in the program. But first, good news out of New Mexico, effective yesterday afternoon, U.S. District Judge issued a temporary restraining order blocking the executive order of New Mexico Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham, which sought to strip the citizens of New Mexico of their right to carry weapons in public with or without a permit. So joining me now to talk about this phenomenal victory is Brian Festa, who is the president and co-founder of We the Patriots USA, and they were instrumental in getting this victory. So Brian, um, congratulations on your legal efforts uh, here. I think that everyone was very concerned about this uh, obvious overreach by this New Mexico governor and I'm frankly uh, really grateful to this judge as well for striking this down. Yeah. Hi, Jenna. Thanks for having me back. Um, This was a a great day for not just the citizens of New Mexico yesterday, but for um, America, because it was a federal judge, as you said, uh, upholding the rule of law, upholding the Constitution, um, upholding, you know, his oath to defend and uphold the Constitution. Uh, Remember, it's not just the governor that took an oath. uh, All attorneys take an oath (laughs) to to uphold the Constitution. And uh, the attorney general, just a day before, um, had come out and said, Raul Torres, who's a Democrat, by the way, uh, the attorney general of New Mexico, had come out and said he was not going to defend her in court. So he left her to her own uh, in-house counsel to defend uh, herself in court because he said, yes, you know, I recognize the attorney general normally has an obligation to defend the governor in litigation, but um, my first obligation is to defend and uphold the Constitution. So, yes, this was this was a great victory. Um, it's temporary. It is just a temporary restraining order. So we still have uh, a long road ahead in this. Yeah, and and it it will be a long road ahead, but I was really surprised, frankly, to see that the 
uh, New Mexico Attorney General, as you mentioned, who is a Democrat, uh, wrote a several page letter uh, basically saying that he completely disagreed with this overreach of executive authority and was unwilling to utilize his office to defend this type of executive order. And uh, and I give him major credit for that because uh, in a system that has become so politicized based on party only, he was actually following the rule of law and the Constitution and unwilling to participate in that. Um, how much do you think that played into uh, whether this case ultimately um, the, the judge granted this temporary restraining order because uh, obviously they the the uh, governor had to seek other counsel to represent her and I think you know everybody including the judge probably knows uh, what's going on and, and certainly was aware of this particular letter from the attorney general. Well, you know, I'm not sure how much the attorney general's uh, letter you know, may have influenced this decision because I don't think the judge really needed it. Um, I think, you know, uh, Judge David Urias, uh, who uh, was another Democrat appointee, by the way, he he was appointed by Biden. Um, So he's a recent appointee to the court. But again, this isn't about Democrat-Republican. He realizes, uh, he realized his job is to, uh, you know, faithfully apply the law um, you know, apply not only the the Constitution, but apply the law that's been the case law that's been defined by the Supreme Court. And uh, the overarching decision of the Supreme Court that was cited yesterday was the Bruen decision, as you know, from last year, uh, which uh, established an individual's right to uh, keep and bear arms, not only inside the home, but outside the home. And what really struck me is that in that decision, uh, the Bruin decision, that is. Uh, there's two things uh, that the uh, court said uh, regarding lawful restrictions on the Second Amendment. It said, first, states could lawfully eliminate one kind of public carry, concealed carry, so long as they left open the option to carry openly. And second, governments may not classify entire cities as sensitive places in order to ban any carrying of firearms in public. That's directly from their decision um, at uh, page 2133. Uh, so I have a direct citation there, and yet it's almost like this governor, Michelle Lujan Grisham, it's, it's almost like she took the Bruen decision, circled that part of it, and said that. That right there is what I'm going to do, exactly what they told us uh, <laughs> we can't do. She did that. She said because the city of Albuquerque has rising crime statistics, that it's this kind of sensitive place, that it's this kind of dangerous place. And that's why she's going to ban the carrying of firearms, regardless of whether you have a permit or not. And the Supreme Court had just said last year, you can't do that. So how brazen is this? She thinks she can override the decision of the U.S. Supreme Court. Well, it sounds like a typical Democrat, and I'm really grateful that uh, a judge is smacking that down and saying, you know, absolutely not. But as you mentioned, this is a temporary uh, restraining order, so there is a lot of, of work still to be done. But this executive order was only for 30 days, and some uh, legal analysts, including Jonathan Turley and others, have suggested that because it was so temporary in nature, that may just moot out any 
other um, additional challenges. And so uh, in just the last few minutes, I have with you here Brian Festa of We the Patriots USA and support that a really great organization. Everyone listening, by the way, they do such great um, legal work, including obviously this conversation. Uh, where do you expect this to go in terms of just the the uh, extraordinarily temporary nature of the 30-day ban? Well, um, you know, the judge has already set another hearing for the preliminary injunction, which is, uh, as you know, more, uh, I know it's called preliminary, it's not the permanent injunction, but it's 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 more permanent than a, than a temporary restraining order. Um, and so that hearing will be on October 3rd. So he's already set that hearing, which is actually more than the 14 days that you normally get for a temporary restraining order, because the court can extend that for good cause. And yesterday, uh, because the governor's attorney and one of the other attorneys for the plaintiffs said that uh, they were not able to um, to make that original date he had set, he extended it to October 3rd. So, um, you know, you you know this, Jenna, being an attorney, there is an exception to the mootness doctrine called capable of repetition yet evading review. And, you know, so this would be a prime circumstance for that because she has said openly that she is going to consider in her public health commissioner, uh, because remember, she did this in the name of a public health emergency, unbelievably. Um, so she, they've said they were going to explore making this more permanent and, and ways that they could make this more permanent. So even though it was initially only a 30-day ban, uh, it's very clear that if the court doesn't step in and do something, that you know this could become a more permanent ban on the carrying of weapons. So I don't think it's going to be mooted out, respectfully. I, I disagree with uh, Attorney Turley uh, because I, I do think it meets that mootness exception. Yeah, and, and it sounds like it does, and especially with um, some of her open statements saying that this is something that uh, that may likely continue and, you know, under some of the, and it's so ridiculous that this is a, a public health emergency declaration. I mean, how the Democrats are trying to just um, completely jam through their agenda through emergency uh, protection uh, sorts of of rationale is just beyond absurd. Uh, but I hope that um, and do expect that that a judge would see that and would see the likelihood of repetition and uh, would see that this is a threat to our constitutionally protected freedoms and liberties. And so, uh, Brian Festa, really appreciate your time this morning. Where can people get a hold of you and support We the Patriots? Yeah, thank you. It's We the Patriots. USA.org. Um, we do still have a long road ahead, so anyone who supports this action and, and us defending our Second Amendment rights, uh, please awesome. consider supporting us there. And Thanks so much. We'll be right back with more. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. Well, we had uh, our good friend Joel Rosenberg on the program yesterday, and he made a really interesting comment about the uh, GOP primary. And in his view, Donald Trump is essentially forfeiting the state of Iowa to DeSantis or uh, who is projected, of course, to be uh, the at least second closest front runner. And uh, this race is really coming down, I think, uh, to Donald Trump and, and Governor DeSantis. And so uh, Joel Rosenberg went on to kind of uh, to flesh that out a little bit more. And I asked him for some follow up uh, commentary since in context, for those of you who are listening yesterday, uh, we were speaking more about Vivek 
Vivek Ramaswamy and uh, Joel's interview with him. So I asked him to follow up to expand on a little bit more of what he meant by the forfeiture of the state of Iowa, because I think a lot of people are looking at the Trump campaign and thinking because they are just so prolifically on social media that that somehow means that they're actively campaigning in Iowa. And here's what Jill Rosenberg had to say. This is Cut 9. In talking to a number of uh, key evangelical and Republican strategists and grassroots leaders in uh, Iowa, uh, they just don't see uh, that Trump is making much of an effort and uh, he, they don't see a ground operation that's that's serious compared to DeSantis. DeSantis has, well, he's, you know, he's working his way through traveling to every single county, sort of doing the, uh, you know, the, the, the full grassley. Uh, he's got uh, chairman in every county. He's got, um, I think, some like 40 um, endorsements by uh, Iowa legislators. I don't have all the numbers in front of me right now. Uh, but I was just talking to I've had multiple conversations over the last couple of weeks. And um, and some of these are people that that really like Trump and want him to be doing this. Others have liked him, but feel like maybe the time has passed and maybe uh, it's time to shift. And they're open to other opportunities, other possibilities. They see DeSantis as as the best position to win, uh, much better position than than definitely than uh, Santorum in 2012, then better than uh, Huckabee in 08, better than uh, Ted Cruz at this point in terms of organization, in terms of support, ground game, and money. Um, But they also are starting to think that Trump might be doing this on purpose, that he he thinks that he's going to lose Iowa to DeSantis or to somebody. I mean, I guess, you know, Nikki Haley could surge or, you know, uh, somebody else could surge. Uh, Tim Scott is doing pretty well. But um, but they're starting to think that maybe Trump is thinking that he doesn't even plan on winning it. He didn't win it last time and he won't win it this time. And, and if he doesn't really play hard, then maybe um, then maybe that he can say that it didn't matter. That's what I'm hearing. Thanks. Hope it's helpful. So that, in in my view, was a very honest assessment from Joel Rosenberg, who is a Trump fan and supporter. So uh, how do we respond to this? Is there a a truth to that? So joining me now is our good friend Steve Dace, host of The Steve Dace Show on Blaze TV and in the great state of Iowa. So, Steve, uh, what do you make of Joel Rosenberg's assessment? Um, You know, this strategy has been tried in our state before. Uh, Romney did this in 2012 after he lost here in 2008, wanted to run again. And he very tepidly engaged the state um, for well over a year, even back when we still had an Iowa straw poll, for example. Um, And uh, that was actually the last cycle we had one. And and figured I've got enough of a floor that I can get, you know, 20, 25 percent of just establishment voters that'll show up for me no matter what I do. And because they don't, you know, they don't, the Ron Paul faction was ascendant then, and they don't buy into that. And Rick Santorum's too socially conservative and won't be taken as a serious general election candidate or anybody, Michelle Bachman, other people that were running in that lane during that cycle. So I just come in here, get my 20, 25% claim victory. Hey, I didn't even campaign. Look what I got. 
Um, and then, and then on caucus night, um, that situation was botched to the point that Romney actually was declared the victor. And it was like a week or two later that they correctly counted the votes and Santorum was certified the winner. So I could see that uh, strategy from Trump being emulated for sure. Um, but I would also add, Jenna, that this is being tell me where he's campaigning anywhere in America. Mm. I mean, this is a yeah. basement campaign. I mean, this, this is I mean, this is the campaign we saw from Biden. I mean, it's a basement campaign. He hasn't had a rally since the 4th of July weekend. Um, the, the event he did in South Dakota was not a Trump rally. That was a that was a GOP event that he attended. Um, he hasn't done he hasn't done any form of the aggressive campaigning that we saw in 2016. None of it. So this is you know I haven't checked in a few days, but as recently as late last week, there wasn't anything on his calendar for a campaign, an actual campaign event, nothing anywhere in America. So, I mean, you could have this exact conversation in New Hampshire. You could have it all over. Nevada is another early state. I mean, you could you could have this, you know, systemically. He's not campaigning really anywhere. Yeah, and I think he's that that's really... He, he, he's doing interviews, and it worked for him right. until last night. Then he finally ran into somebody with a top five podcast that was largely built without having to kiss his rear end. And so they were willing to actually ask questions. Plus, they were they just, you know, Megyn Kelly just said over the last couple of weeks, hey, I'm vaccine injured, too. So she was willing to finally ask some of the questions that we've seen others not willing to ask for whatever reason. And that was a cringy, rough watch. Yeah, it, it really was. And um, for listeners, if you haven't seen that interview yet uh, with Megyn Kelly interviewing uh, Donald Trump, it's well worth your time, whether you are a Trump supporter or not. Um, these are questions that that nobody really has asked him directly. And some of the um, evasiveness and, in my view, just out and out um, lies of responses. I mean, denying that, you know, he, he didn't know who gave a, uh, a, a commendation to Dr. Fauci at the end of the term. I mean, it was him. And, and the so fact that he wasn't. Day of office. Yeah. He gave yeah. Dr. Fauci on his last day in office. Yeah. And, and, I mean, and the fact that he wasn't willing to just step up and say that, um, I, I think really shows that he is not willing to engage in his uh, policy decision making and isn't really willing to uh, confront some of these issues and, and say, here's where I made a decision or here's what I would do differently. And I and, and just from, you know, whether or not anybody you know, supports any candidate, I think it's so important that leaders with a record and he does have a four year record that they're willing to do what, for example, Governor DeSantis is doing and say, okay, here's what we learned during COVID. Here's what I would do differently. Here's what we did right. And here were some things that in hindsight were mistakes. And and this is what I want to do differently. I mean, that that is leadership. But it seems like uh, Donald Trump, just his personality type, his ego, whatever it is, he just doesn't want to go there. How much is that potentially going to hurt him um, in in the overall and, and particularly in Iowa, Steve? Well, I, I think in Iowa, you have to remember, we never had a stay at home order. Our state was the first to reopen in the country by gubernatorial decree. I mean, we, we had high school sporting events in, in June and July back in the state when a lot of states still were uncertain that they were going to have high school, period, in the fall. So if, if, 
except for the first couple of weeks when we didn't know what we were dealing with. I mean, by May 1, I mean, Governor Reynolds had so reopened the state. I mean, I, I was I was going to movies in May. No, I, it was to see films like The Goonies because they weren't releasing any new movies. But, I mean, you were going to the movies. I mean, May 1, you know, I it, we were reopening. I took my I took my wife on a hotel dinner getaway, you know, po- May 1, when most people around the country were still wondering whether they were ever going to do that again. So Iowans lived a dramatically different COVID experience than 97, 98 percent of the country did. So here, that's going to matter a lot. But but given the platform we're on, I, I want to address, if you don't mind, I, I want to address this in an explicitly Christian context, mm-hmm. um, because the politicians, man, come and go. The names come and go. There was a period of time in our lives where it felt like Barack Obama was the sun, the moon, and the stars, you know? And unless there is some embarrassing anecdote or a tragedy at his compound, the name never even comes up in our lives these days. We're all, you know, we're vapors here. and We don't live here forever. And so what remains is the word of the Lord. And idolatry is a killer to any country, to any culture, to any relationship. And any time we put, and I get this on the other end, uh, you know, if I point out Trump's successes, I'll have a bunch of DeSantis supporters will pound my inbox right away. Well, any, any Republican that won in 2016 would have appointed the justice of the overturn row. I don't know. I voted for, quote, any Republican for 30 years, Jenna, and they didn't appoint the justice of the overturn row. He did. So he gets the credit for that. You get the credit for when you're on the side of right, and you get accountability for when you're not. And what you're watching here is a very King Saul trajectory. And, and people, you know, we always think of King Saul in the, in the postmortem of where things were at with him at the end. But people forget that the story didn't start out that way. It was very clear that for, there was a moment that King Saul was a good king. There, was, there were moments in the scriptures where King Saul delivers the people and, and has earned credibility with the people. But eventually, you know, your, your sins find you out. When, when you allow sin to creep at your door to that level and don't repent of it, don't own up to it, and ultimately his ego, his vanity, the kinds of things that drove him to great success at a younger age, when they are not reined in by the fruit of the Spirit that you guys were just talking about in the last commercial break I heard, when they're not reined in by those things and channel in the right direction, eventually they become points of diminishing returns, and they end up swallowing you whole. And... Donald Trump is just a human being who needs Jesus like anybody else, despite the mythical, you know, Paul Bunyan-esque legends surrounding him. And what you're watching is a, is a, is a man pushing 80 who is at an age where you're not buying green bananas, who by his own admission has never bowed the knee to Jesus and, for, and asked God for forgiveness, because according to me, he's never done anything wrong. And you're watching him be swallowed whole by his ego and narcissism. Stop and consider, Jenna, the only reason we're even having this primary at all is because of the mistakes Trump made in 2020, many of them, frankly, forgivable, given what he was ambushed with. There are so many off-ramps that people are just begging him to take, Jenna, begging him. I mean, I I don't know that there's a person, and there are people in our audiences right now that are praying more for Donald Trump to repent here than their own children, for goodness sakes, and he won't take any of them, Jenna, none of them. People, People are rooting for him, please just give me a reason to forgive you for all of this. Give me a reason to forgive you about my uncle who died suddenly. 
Give me a reason to forgive you about my grandfather who died alone in lockdowns and I couldn't say goodbye. Give me a reason to forgive you for my, for my friend who shot himself because his church closed down and he lost his Celebrate Recovery group. I know, these are all stories in my audience, by the way, because they're all stories in, our, in all of our audiences. They are begging him to take it. Show some, show, I want to be a fan again. I want to. I, give me any reason you possibly could to show me that twinkles in the eye and let's go get the Democrats. And he won't give it to them. And it's because ultimately you, you do not rise above your own worldview. This would require something of Donald Trump his entire life that he has evaded. And his, in his mind, successfully, whether it's with failed marriages or businesses, he has avoided repentance. The accountability that I, of bowing the knee, I screwed up. I'm not what the people are waiting for. I'm not, I don't tiptoe between the raindrops. I'm not sinless. All right. I need the Lord in my life, the only sinless one. He won't do it. And people suffered um, because of that decision making process in 2020. People are still suffering. Every bit of inflation we have right now all goes back to COVID. Virtually every issue that is threatening us right now all goes back to COVID before we even get to these poisonous jabs, where according to the CDC's own data, if you gave a teenager COVID, the COVID jab, there was maybe one life a year was saved, but anywhere from 100,000 to 200,000 adverse events were reported in teenagers. That's not even negative efficacy. That's a democide that people ought to go on freaking trial for. And, and he won't do it. He, people want, uh, just give me something. I want to forgive. I want to embrace. I want to be all in. And he won't provide it because that would require admitting he was wrong, that he is a sinner. And ultimately, we can't rise above our own worldview. And we need to remember there are founding fathers who are in hell for all of eternity, who did some great work, but they didn't bow the knee to Jesus either. They didn't repent of owning slaves either. And they're in hell now. Because of, where they, because of that, those decisions. And so will he be because of these kinds of decisions. And Jesus isn't going to say, hey, you appointed the three justices that overturned Roe, so let's just totally over-forget the fact that you never actually bowed the knee to me. That's not how this works. And, and we are acting in too many cases as Christians in the political sphere like it does. And before that man needs to be president again, and before he needs to stop, escape the quote-unquote witch hunts, that man needs Jesus again. Because you make these kinds, or, or first, that you make these kinds of decisions that go against what would even be in your, his ambitions would be fueled by showing some, some self-awareness. And he won't do it because he can't admit, I'm not God. Mm. You know, really incredibly well said, Steve. And I think that you perfectly articulated um, exactly how I, as a voter, um, feel and, and you know and I know him well as a as a friend as a former boss I have great love and respect for him personally but everything that you just said resonates with me as exactly why I simply can't support him for elected office again um, why I have have chosen to uh, to distance is because of that um, frankly malignant narcissistic tendency to uh, to to simply say that that he's never done anything wrong and the total idolatry that I'm seeing from some of the supporters that are unwilling to put the Constitution and the country and the conservative principles above their love for a a star 
uh, is really troubling. And I think that we do need to, as Americans and as conservatives and particularly as Christians, take this very seriously and understand where are we putting our vote. Thank you so much, Steve Dace. We'll be right back with more. Did you know that every day, Preborn's network of clinics experiences 200 miracles? How? Preborn gives women with unplanned pregnancies a window into their womb through free ultrasounds, introducing them to the beautiful life growing inside. Once she meets her child inside her womb and hears their heartbeat, the chance of her baby's life doubles. Because of the generosity of you and me who donate just $28 to sponsor an ultrasound, Preborn can do this. The cost of a dinner can save a life, the most worthwhile investment you can make. All gifts are tax deductible and go entirely to saving babies. Someday you may meet a baby that you rescued and you can give them a hug. Or maybe they'll give you a hug. Maybe they'll even save your life as they grow and pursue meaningful careers. One thing is for sure, you will never regret saving a child's life because life is a miracle. Please donate your best gift today. Just dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 baby or go to preborn.com. That's preborn.com. Speaking truth with love. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Welcome back. And joining me now is Congressman Mike Johnson from the great state of Louisiana and part of House Leadership to tell us more about what's going on with this impeachment inquiry. So good morning, Representative Johnson, and thanks so much for joining. Hey, Jenna. Great to be with you, as always. Yeah. So so I think that uh, the first question on everybody's mind is, uh, is this actually going to result in an actual impeachment of Joe Biden? And why did it take this long to get to this stage? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I was home uh, during August a lot. We were on district work period. I did town halls all over my district. And that was the big question of my constituents as well. And I explained to them that um, there's really a couple of answers to that really important and simple question. First of all, we have to remember that next to a declaration of war, impeachment is is probably the most awesome power that Congress has. I mean, the idea that you could move to remove a president from office is a a big thing. And the founders intended it to be very rarely and carefully used. And that's why there's only been 21 examples of impeachment in 200, you know, 247 years of our country. That's that's all that we've had. Um, And and we've rarely ever done it for a president. The problem that we have in our minds right now is that the Democrats, of course, completely abused that awesome power by using it as a political weapon against Donald Trump. And so I served on the impeachment defense team twice for for our former president and uh, was intimately involved in how they abused that process. And I promised as did Jim Jordan and all of us involved in that so closely on, on record and on video a thousand times, you know, that we would never use this for political purposes. It can't be. Um, it's not a pledge you make on the campaign trail. It, it's not, it shouldn't be a threat. It's not a political exercise at all. We have to follow the law. Now, the Constitution is very clear uh, how you do this, and the sole power of impeachment belongs at the House, but you have to have a very methodical, you should do this, a very methodical investigation to line up all the evidence and facts to ensure that they do point you towards impeachment. And that's what we've been doing. It's been very difficult. The reason it's taken so long is that the federal agencies and the White House itself that are required to supply information to the House when we're seeking it 
have been stonewalling us. They have impeded this investigation. They fought us at every turn. At some point, they they told us things that weren't accurate and true. And so it's taken quite a while to get to this point. The Oversight Committee, under the leadership of our my good buddy Jamie Comer, has done an extraordinary job. We've been doing investigations in my Judiciary Committee, as you know, on my uh, Weaponization Committee. And it has led us to the point where now we're moving to impeachment inquiry because the evidence requires us to do so. And that's what you're going to see in earnest now. And what a what a great contrast to how the Democrats have abused not only the power of impeachment, but uh, the power of indictment and the power of uh, you well, know a yeah. lot of other offices uh, that they are looking to weaponize government. And they have weaponized government against their political opponents, uh, namely Donald Trump, over the last few years. And so this is a a contrast. And so uh, so what is your response then to Chuck Schumer, who of course came out uh, from Senate leadership and just called this a witch hunt, which, frankly, I mean, I was there in the first impeachment um, as well, right there with you. That's how you and I actually got to know, know. each other. Yeah. And uh, and and to, and I actually found that very offensive that he would he would call this a witch hunt and and try to spin this as merely a political retribution for everything that they did for Donald Trump. But I think some people out there would say that's OK, even if it is political rep- retribution. Yeah, some people will will say that, but um, you know, as as one who took an oath to uphold the Constitution, we I have an obligation, um, an ethical, a moral, a legal obligation to keep this between the lines. And and what I mean by that is that we are going to follow the Constitution. I am reminding my colleagues here: this is not about going to get a political scalp as retribution for what they did to Donald Trump. It can't be because if we reduce ourselves to that, we're just like Chuck Schumer and the Democrats, who are literally quite literally, Jenna, as you know, destroying our system of justice. They weaponize the DOJ. They weaponize all these processes. And that's why the American people are losing their faith in our institutions. Hello. We have to maintain those institutions to keep the republic. This is very serious stuff. But if we follow the Constitution, this is what it says very plainly. You you and I know the language by heart. It's Article 2, Section 4. It says a president shall be removed from office on impeachment of and conviction for treason, bribery, high crimes and misdemeanors. Now, that language is very precise. And we argued for years during the Trump years about what a high crime and misdemeanor is. Okay, everybody knows what a bribe is. Right. And what we have right now in our hands and on my desk, I'm looking at stacks of evidence, Jenna, as I'm talking to you in my in my office here in the Cannon House office building. We have credible allegations and mounting stacks of evidence to show that President Biden engaged in bribery schemes. He engaged in a pay-by-play schemes. He certainly committed high crimes and misdemeanors, but we've got very clear evidence of corruption that is so broad and wide and so obvious that we have no choice but to proceed. So it doesn't matter what Chuck Schumer says. He's a barking dog at this point on, on this politics stuff. He has no credibility at all. Of course he's going to protect the president. We could catch Joe Biden in the act of robbing a bank, and he would say that was okay. I mean, they're going to protect their guy at all costs, but we have to do our job under the Constitution, and I am doggedly determined to do that. We're going to follow this truth wherever it leads. And following the truth wherever it leads is 
uh, absolutely the right way to go about it. And I think um, you are absolutely right to be dedicated to the language and the text of the U.S. Constitution and the intent of that law, that it isn't just political retribution, because if this continues uh, down that road, at least in the Democrats' mind, um, you're right that they are trying to tear down all of our institutions of government. They're trying to weaponize all of the processes. And then where does that lead? Because then as soon as Democrats get in power, then they just try to go after Republicans. And then if Republicans get in power, they go after the Democrats. And then the American people aren't even being served. So um, so, so what do you expect then, Congressman Mike Johnson, from uh, the, at least the next um, few weeks and months? Uh, how long is this inquiry uh, going to take? Is there already a plan for how many uh, subpoenas are going to be issued? You know, some of those details, if you can share them at this point. Well, uh, I, I don't know about some of those details. I do know that we are going to uh, work as efficiently, effectively, quickly as possible. Um, the, the, the whole purpose of moving to the impeachment inquiry phase, and I'm so grateful that Speaker McCarthy uh, finally did that, is that it gives us uh, sort of advanced uh, authority and power to, uh, to go for these subpoenas and to gather this documentation. See, everybody has to remember, in a normal circumstance, Congress is limited in its scope. If, if a congressional committee is doing an investigation, it has to be tied to a legitimate legislative purpose. You know, we're going to write a law or, or reform a law to make things work better. Um, but that's not what this is anymore, of course. It's like a criminal investigation, <laughs> effectively. And so you have to have the inquiry declared because that allows us to go and gather documents that they would otherwise uh, stonewall. They've been doing that for some time now and saying, oh, you don't have a legislative purpose in this. You're just, quote unquote, after the Biden family. No, we're after the truth. And so when they challenge our subpoenas at the White House level or at one of these agencies like the DOJ, like they have been, we'll go straight to court. And the judge will look at this and say, well, this isn't a normal congressional investigation. This is now an impeachment inquiry. This is the most serious matter under our Constitution, and therefore you have to turn over those documents. Um, that, that's what you're going to see here. You're going to see a lot of, I predict, some court clashes, and it will take a little bit of time to sort that out. But we're working 24-7 on this uh, because it's the highest priority, and we have to get the truth to the American people. And speaking of some of those court clashes, there was an article um, in Politico that actually uh, gave rise to, to one of these potential challenges. And the title here is how Donald Trump's DOJ gave Biden a major assist in the coming impeachment probe. And it's talking about how uh, the in January 2020, uh, the Donald Trump-led Justice Department formally declared that impeachment inquiries by the House are invalid unless the chamber takes a formal vote to authorize them. That opinion that was issued by the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel came in response to then-House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's decision to launch an impeachment inquiry into Trump without initially holding a vote for it. And so the argument is that not only is it still on the books, but that it's binding on the current administration um, even though Nancy Pelosi went ahead and that full impeachment uh, and the vote for the articles of impeachment happened and the trial in the Senate happened. And uh, there's still some Democrats are still trying uh, to to disqualify Donald Trump on the ballot and have other things happen uh, because of that impeachment and what was alleged there, even though he was exonerated. So um, is that a potential issue with the Office of Legal Counsel's opinion? No, I, I think it's fine. I mean, everybody has to recognize we've not precluded a vote on the floor, and, and the speaker could call one at any time. Um, what, what he was trying to do, we're in the midst right now, as everybody 
anybody who's paying attention recognizes, we have a fiscal cliff on September 30th, the end of the fiscal year. We've got appropriations bills and spending battles and all sorts of debates going on right now on the floor and, and in, <laughs> in between uh, votes and everything else. And so there's a lot going on. So the, for the sake of expediency and because the evidence has taken us to this moment, the speaker stepped out and said, let's go. I declare that this is now an inquiry phase and let's move forward. We, we may well have a vote. It could be happening next week. I'm not sure. Um, it's the speaker's call. But what he wanted to do is press that button so that our committees who are also doing all these things, oversight, judiciary, weaponization, even ways and means, speaking to tax corruption information, that we now have that uh, extended, expanded authority to move forward and we can formalize it at any point. So I think it's much ado about nothing, frankly, in, in my view. Pelosi sets the precedent and they all applaud it until the Republicans uh, utilize the same precedent, and then suddenly it's scandalous. I mean, you know, this is <laughs> this is typical playbook for the other side. <laughs> yeah, this, this sounds like typical uh, politicking, and um, and so is is that potentially a basis for some of these agencies or uh, the Biden White House to say, well, we're not going to cooperate with any of this expanded power unless and until you hold that vote, and and essentially try to strong arm the speaker into calling it uh, maybe sooner than he otherwise would. Well, I don't know. We'll have to see how it plays out. But if they try that, I mean, I, you know, we can call the vote the same afternoon. I, I, I don't have any doubt that we'll, we'll have the votes uh, to proceed formally. Um, it's just a matter of floor time this week. I mean, to me, I think it's just very practical. We're managing the clock and we've got a lot to do here before September 30th. And um, and it, it, a lot of it has to do with the budget and, and keeping the government open. So, so that, that, that's a, a priority that's uh, top of the list for everybody. But this is a major priority as well. They've got to do both. Yeah, and, and, and I think that everyone is um, still concerned about everything else going on with uh, the the system of, of government and keeping everything running. And um, so in the midst of all of this as well, um, what's, what is the general tenor with some of your colleagues across the aisle? I mean, are there any Democrats that are actually looking at the piles of evidence that you're talking about, you're looking at right now, and saying, yeah, you know, he, he might be our guy on our party, but we want to follow where uh, the facts and evidence show, or is this really going to come down to just the simple fact that Republicans do have the majority and so uh, they're willing to actually look into this? Um, is there any sense potentially that um, that this could be bipartisan at the end of the day? Well, look, I think the evidence is going to require it. I think anyone who's, and, and the reason that I'm anxious to prepare this evidence. And, and I do this, my personal belief is, because I've seen so much of this because I'm on the committees of jurisdiction, I think the evidence is going to lead into an impeachment. We've not prejudged that, but I'm just basing it on what I have, what I personally know and have seen. I think we connect one or two more dots and you are, you, you've got the president himself directly engaged in, in bribery schemes. That's where I think this is headed. Um, so so that being the case, I think the evidence would be so clear. If, you know, the next stage, then we would ultimately uh, file and pass articles of impeachment in the House, and then it goes to the Senate for the actual trial of the Senate. Everybody knows this process well because they used it on Trump twice. Um, I, I expect that I may be one of the managers presenting that case in the Senate. And when we do, you will see something very different than what the Democrats did. It will be a very methodical presentation of real hard evidence, not crazy theories and political ideas like they did against Donald Trump. And I think that evidence is going to be so clear. I think the trail will be so 
uh, obvious that anyone of uh, good conscience will, in good faith, will have to look at that and say, yes, it's, he's guilty of this. You know, so Jenna, I don't know how they're going to vote in the end. I don't know that you get a lot of Democrat votes, but I think there's some over there whose own constituents will look them in the eye and say, "What are you talking about? Of course this is clear. Of course they're corrupt." You saw some interesting developments in the last 24 or 36 hours. Uh, the David Ignatius piece in the in the Post and some other high-level Democrats who are now openly saying, "Well, maybe Joe Biden's not cut out for this. Maybe he's too old." I think that's their excuse, one of the excuses they're using, because they realize he is tainted now, and he may not, he, well, not be their best candidate uh, in 24. So we'll see how it all shakes out. Yeah, and, and Congressman Mike Johnson, I, I think this is uh, also really interesting to see uh, whether the Democrats will um, ultimately just just give up and almost concede the issue because we are heading into the presidential uh, primary season, and you know, obviously on the GOP side, that has been uh, majorly contested already, and everybody is up and running there. But on the Democrat side, uh, what they're uh, potentially going to uh, d- to respond to all of this, and so it's going to be very interesting to see. But as you say, I think for the American people and certainly for Christian conservatives, we need to remember that this isn't about politics now. This is about the rule of law. This is about going where the facts and evidence do lead. So we will be praying for you consistently in this endeavor for your colleagues and that everyone, Republican or Democrat, will look clearly at this and will do the right thing ultimately in voting and follow where the facts and evidence leave so that we can continue to keep a good precedent and to continue to secure our institutions of government and uphold the U.S. Constitution, not just make this a political exercise. So thank you so much for everything that you do there in Congress and for joining me. We are praying for you and appreciate all of the hard work that you do on behalf of the American people. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio. We'd like to thank our sponsors, including Preborn. Preborn has rescued over 200,000 babies from abortion, and every day their network clinics rescue 200 babies' lives. Will you join Preborn in loving and supporting young moms in crisis? Save a life today. Go to preborn.com.